say Merry Christmas and welcome your friends to worship today. Church, so glad that you are here. We have come to worship Jesus Christ, the Savior. And uh, we have a song we're about to sing. It's a familiar Christmas hymn, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, but somebody put an incredible chorus to it that speaks of Jesus as coming to bring and give us life. We want to teach you that chorus together, and it sounds like this. He has come for us, this Jesus. He's the hope for all mankind. He has come for us, the Messiah, born to give us life. Sing that together with us. He has come for us, this Jesus. He's the that Jesus has come. He is here. He is with us and he is for us. Let's sing this great old Christmas hymn of faith together as Gabby leads us out on this. Sing it with me.
of comfort and joy. We can celebrate. Hallelujah. You can be seated as we continue. Pastor John. Good morning and welcome to Cypress Bible Church. What a great opportunity to celebrate together what Jesus has done. My name is John Buchem. I'm one of the pastors here for at least a little while longer and glad that you have joined us today. Let me bring a couple of things to your attention. One is next Sunday, as part of our worship time, we'll be having an anointing service. So that's an opportunity for you, if you choose to, to come forward and receive anointing in the name of the Lord for health and healing in Jesus' name, our elders and staff, pastors will be uh, prepared to do that as part of our service toward the end uh, next Sunday. And I also want to alert you to our Christmas Eve services. It's hard to believe. I, I, I'm having trouble believing we're in December, let alone Christmas is coming so soon. But uh, Christmas Eve services, there are two of them, and the times are different than they have been in the past, so I want to repeat that. They'll be at 3 and 5 p.m. Christmas Eve. So 3 and 5 p.m., different schedule. Uh, the 3 p.m. service will be live stream. I trust that you'll come and join us. It will be a special time of worship and celebration together, and we look forward to that. Well, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and Cameron is going to come now and lead us in Advent prayer and reading and our focus today. Good morning, CBC. It's such a joy and honor to be here with you today. Um, such a fitting focus that we are focusing on love. Um, as from the moment that I walk through the doors of CBC, I have always felt welcome, loved. It's such a warm congregation, and I am so glad to be a part of it. I count every blessing every time I walk through these doors. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to help us remind us of their love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's John 10, 410, sorry, First John 410. And John 3, 16 through 17 reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. What an amazing God we serve. I will now light our love candle. I hope you don't mind, but before we continue worshiping our good, good father, I want to say a prayer over us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your greatest gift of love, Jesus Christ, Father. Fill us with such a love. Open our hearts so that we are able to receive your love, Father. Creating us a new heart so that we are able to see others the way that you see them. People are not always easy to love, and we know this, Father. So remind us that following you means loving others the way that you love us. Guide our steps, Father. Lead us so that we are able to shine your light through us and to, to be the light for others so that when we walk in your love, they know that you are there with them, Father. Help us to bring others to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Cameron, thank you so much for leading us in that moment. Uh, you may not know this, but Cameron is actually on your staff team here at the church. She works in the children's ministry. Amen. And um, I asked her if she would lead that moment. And then I had another conversation with her. I said, do you sing? And she said, well, I've been trying to hide this a little bit, but I sing. And I, I sang at a church I was at in the past. And I said, well, now you're going to sing in Cyprus. And so she actually took a lot of big steps. She said, let me pray about it. And I, I just pushed her into doing it. So she is doing it with us this morning and led that one moment so wonderfully, but we're so grateful that you're here and that you're blessing your church family with all the gifts that God's given you. And speaking of love, as we have been focusing on Advent and all the wonderful uh, aspects of who God is, uh, he shows love. And the scripture says that we are to outdo one another in kindness. And we need to be uh, very grateful uh, 
for Pastor John Bukema and his wife Amy and the service that they have provided here at, at um, Cypress Bible. And you have an opportunity to share your thanks. Um, next week will be Pastor John's final week with us. There's going to be a reception after the service. There's going to be cookies. So you need to come get a cookie for sure. And that'll give you the sugar energy to tell Pastor John and Amy all the things that you are grateful for about. Because it is just so important, I believe, in the body of Christ to be encouragers and to share. How has God moved? How has God worked? There's going to be a basket that's available after this service and next week as well. And if you have a personal note, you write a note on your own note cards. I messed it up last service. Everybody thought there was note cards that you picked up from us. But you bring your own notes and you can put them in the basket. And I can tell you already that Pastor John and Amy don't care what it's written on, even if it's the back of the worship guide, okay? Write a little note and tell them thank you uh, for all that God has used them to do here. Uh, It is a incredible weight, I'll just say this, to be a senior pastor. You carry a burden that uh, is really of the church and and from the Lord, and uh, there's a responsibility, and it is a heavy burden, but it's a burden that people who are called to carry it do. And Pastor John, I believe you've carried that burden very well here at this church, and God is calling him to a new place and to carry that burden uh, at another place, and and God's going to take care of Cypress Bible as we're um, missing Pastor John, but there's going to be someone that the Lord brings here as well. And we prayed even on Wednesday night as the worship team that God may be already preparing and stirring in that person's heart right now. And so continue to pray for that. Continue to pray for what God might do. But let's share gratitude and thanks for what Pastor John and Amy have done here. And then we would be missed if we didn't say this. As the scripture does say, to outdo one another in kindness, and that's a great thing. But we have gathered here and come today to worship Jesus Christ, the Savior, to lift his name on high, to sing his praise, and really to stand in amazement of what he has done. And that's what this next song talks about. So let me invite you to stand together and let's continue to worship.
for saving us. Thank you for sending your only son, Jesus, to come as a precious and innocent and humble baby. Lord, you could have come as a conquering king. You could have come with a big golden staircase and coming down with the trumpets announcing that you're here. But Lord, instead, this time, you chose to come. Simple, quiet, humble, in the back. And showed us what it meant to live a life of humility. 
And so God, we thank you for that example. And I pray that all of us would try to, as the scripture says, humble ourselves in your sight and to walk this life of humility and to be reminded that our identity is not found in who we are or what we can do, but it's found in you and the hope and the love that's found in Jesus for all of us. We are grateful. It's in the powerful and strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you will likely remember the terrible Ebola outbreak that happened back in 2014. It's an extremely dangerous time in uh, Liberia, especially. And Dr. Kent Brantley was there uh, fighting that, along with a team of others. And uh, then one morning, after seven weeks of fighting against this disease himself, the, uh, the 33-year-old physician woke up not feeling so great. And uh, he said, I, I decided to, to just stay home. I just had a, a little bit of a temperature, but I wanted to play it safe because I thought I had a cold. But it just kept getting worse. Four days later, his team leader said, Kent, buddy, I, I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you, but you're positive for Ebola. And within a short time, doctors did not believe Kent would make it through the night. But he did and was able to be flown back to the United States for treatment at Emory University Hospital. His life still in danger. Slowly, with that kind of treatment, he improved. And as he got stronger, Kent, a committed Christian, said this, I thank God for the team who's giving me compassionate, world-class care. I'm more grateful every day to the Lord for sparing my life and continuing to heal my body. Took three weeks at Emory Hospital. but Then finally Kent was declared cured and he was discharged. No longer contagious for this deadly disease, he was able to, to leave the isolation unit and embrace his young family. So I, I thought about that news story and wondered, well, what's it like to escape a death sentence? What's it like to be declared cured of something that seems so incurable? Our, our series is called Becoming. We're spending three weeks on uh, some classic passages in the New Testament about who we are becoming in Christ. Last week we talked about becoming renewed. Next week, becoming certain. This morning we want to focus on a, a very important passage of Scripture about becoming righteous. This is one of the most significant verses in the Bible, I believe. This is a truth so powerful that it should change your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And let me read it for you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope if you haven't memorized that in your life that you would do so today. This is powerful, life-changing truth. Why is it so important? It's because it's a declaration that in Christ you are cured. Because of Jesus, you've escaped a death sentence to become righteous. Receive this and it will remove your guilt and relieve your despair. Put this truth into practice and it could save your marriage. Live in this reality and it will encourage you to face situations that seem to be impossible in your life. This fact, this doctrine can raise you to a new level of godliness where you'll look more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today. How? Well, well, this one sentence describes the impossible that God has done. Since every human being is a sinner by nature and by choice, we are born enemies of God. That's biblical theology. It's not something our world likes to hear, but that's what the Bible says is true. We're born enemies of God because of sin. We're alienated from the one who is so holy he can't look on sin. But God has made it possible for sinners to be cured so completely that they become the righteousness of God. 
Now, you might be thrown off by that word righteousness. It's not one that we use a lot in our world today. But let me give you a few examples uh, from everyday life to help you grab on to what that means. So if you want a loan, if you want to get a mortgage at a bank, then you, you bring your financial information to the bank to prove you deserve a loan. And so the bank looks at your credit score and your income and your financial history. They probably take blood samples. I don't know. And those records are your financial righteousness. And if your records are good enough, your loan will be approved. Or what if you're applying to university? You make a case for why the school should accept you based on your academics and your community service. The fact that your parents went there, maybe, or your accomplishments, and, and all of that, the record of your grades and your test scores and your, your, all those accomplishments, that's your academic righteousness, the reason why you are accepted or rejected by that school. Or if you want to adopt a child, the agency evaluates all your, your references, your, your home situation, your finances, all, all that information, and, and those records are your parental righteousness determining whether or not you're worthy to be adoptive parents. So bring that over into the spiritual world. And righteousness is the moral record that determines whether or not God accepts us. And the problem is that no matter how good we are, our record falls short. That we all fail to deserve the acceptance of God. And even though you might come far closer than I do, none of us is anywhere near good enough. And this verse tells us God's solution for that problem. It tells us how to become the righteousness of God. So I want to organize this under three headings. These headings are not unique to me, and they're not insightful and creative, but it helps us to work through this in an orderly fashion. And the three headings are the designer, the substitute, and the beneficiary. The designer, the substitute, the beneficiary. So let's work through this passage in that way. First of all, the designer. Notice the first words of the verse. God made. The entire plan is God's doing. The solution to our sin and becoming righteousness had to, had to come from God. It could never come from us. As the, the ancient prophet Isaiah wrote, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. All our good works and our best efforts aren't good enough. And so God had to reach out to us. He had to initiate. He had to design the plan that would make sinners righteous. And that, by the way, is the very easy difference between Christianity and every other philosophy and religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion, philosophy, theology, in existence is different than Christianity in this regard. Everything else is about humans reaching up to God, humans deserving God's love, humans becoming good enough, earning God's favor, or becoming God's themselves. But Christianity says, oh, that's impossible. All that fails. God did all the work. God's the initiator. God's the designer. He built the bridge of reconciliation. He created the possibility for sinners to be made righteous. And in doing that, God demonstrated that he is both just and he is loving. Now, people in our world today complain about God being just or not just or say that God is all love or God can't be loving because this happens or that happens. But God is both just and loving. Because God is just, he, he won't simply ignore sin and evil. He will not. He's just. His justice demands that sin and evil be paid. He, he doesn't say, let's just forgive and forget all that nasty stuff. No, God, because he is just, will punish those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.8. So judging sin is part of God's plan because he is just. Someone has to pay for sin. And that's a relief for us when we think about all the evil in our world. And usually when we think about evil, we're pointing at someone else, not ourselves. We think about that and thought, well, God will deal with that. That's a good thing. We want wickedness punished. God's just. But God is also loving. So his plan, his design is motivated by love. 
as Cameron read for us, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God doesn't hate sinners. He can't look on sin, uh, but, but he doesn't hate sinners. He loves them so much that he's designed a way for them to have fellowship with him forever. And so the good news is that you don't have to try to appease God because you can't do it anyway. The good news is that you don't have to try and qualify for God to pick you. Oh, no, because you'll never qualify. You don't meet the requirements. The good news is that you don't have to somehow work out your own righteousness because your righteousness will never measure up and neither will mine. It's like filthy rags. The good news is that God is the designer. God is the initiator who makes righteousness possible. Now, um, uh, some years ago, uh, Amy did me a huge favor, my wife. Uh, there was a, a gift-giving occasion coming up, and it was one of those where, yeah, we're definitely getting gifts for each other. Uh, and, and she told me, she said, uh, well in advance, she said, I, I don't know what you were thinking of getting me. Fear struck my heart. Well, she said, I would be happy. I, I, would, I would be happy if you just did this. And she told me what this was. It wasn't a mystery. I, I could, and, and I was so happy. I didn't have to wonder, is this going to work? Is this good enough? Is this, I, I, don't, I, don't, I just knew. She told me. I did it. Everyone was happy. It was the best year ever. I want one of those again, by the way, if you can come up with that. That's what God has done. God says, here is the way. And it's the only way. I've done it for you. But this is it. Uh, the plan God made involved death. Because dealing with sin always involved death. From the beginning of recorded history, we have animals being sacrificed as payment for sin. The ancient Jewish people regularly traveled to the temple to make sacrifices. Millions upon millions of animals were ritually slaughtered because sin required bloody death. The blood of those animals did not remove sin. It only covered it for a time. And so the sacrifice had to be repeated over and over and over again. Why? What was the point? Why would God do that? Well, it was to demonstrate the foundational spiritual truth that the wages of sin is death. That's the only payment for sin, death. Every time the people sinned, the blood of bulls and sheep and goats had to be spilled, and God was preparing them for his grand solution. That He was designing an ultimate sacrifice that would deal with sin once for all. And so what the, the designer had designed was a substitute. That's the second part. The substitute is that God made him who had no sin to be sin. So the substitute God made is the one who had no sin. Who's that? Well, it can't be any mere human, because the Bible is very clear that there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says we, are all, we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So no mere human qualifies as a substitute, because only God himself is sinless. And yet, in order to be a substitute for sinful human beings, one has to be human. So if you're going to have a sinless human, you have to have a human who is also God. And that's exactly what God designed. God the Son became man. And that's the gift of love we celebrate here at Advent, that the perfect, holy, eternal Son wrapped in flesh and was born into this world, not with a human father, but conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And so Jesus had a human mother so that he might be human, fully human. But he was the eternally existent Son of God, so he's fully God. That made Jesus the God-man, the sinless human being. Since he was God, he was sinless. Since he was human, he could be the substitute. And as the sinless substitute, Christ was made to be sin. And that doesn't mean that he became a sinner. It means that God took all of our sin and put it on Christ. God treated Jesus as if he were the sinner. Jesus suffered the death penalty for sin. That's ours, not his. See, sin is always paid by death. It's either going to be your death eternally or you receive the substitute's death in your place. Now, uh, there's a little illustration that I've thought through before. So let's just say that I've been successfully robbing banks for the last few months. Successfully. You say, well, you should be dressing better than I. Okay, but fine, but... 
But let's say I finally get caught after bank number eight. And, and I'm arrested and I'm charged with eight counts of armed robbery. And it's an open and shut case because I'm a criminal mastermind. I don't wear a mask. There are witnesses who can identify. That's my pastor over there. So they're identifying me. I'm on video smiling into the security camera. And when they catch me, I'm carrying the money and a gun. And so imagine, you know, the case is closed. I'm standing before the judge ready to, to, to be declared guilty. And my brother, my little brother, he's three years younger than me, Stephen, he steps forward and he says, declare me guilty instead. Let me take John's sentence. Let me serve his time. Let his record be cleared and put all his crimes on my account. And I would take that deal, okay? Because he owes me. He owes me. Now, um, my brother is completely innocent. He has a clean record. He's an upstanding citizen. He's a retired Marine Corps officer. He's a retired history teacher. And he retired like five years ago. This is not fair. He's my little brother. But he offers to pay for my crimes. He offers to be my substitute. You know what that's called? It's called imputation. Imputation. That's what's happened here. Imputation. My sin transferred to Jesus' account, and he paid the penalty. It's not just called off. No, he paid the penalty. As the substitute, sin was imputed to Christ. It wasn't his. He wasn't guilty. But God transferred the sin to his account. Our sin charged to Jesus' record. He paid the penalty. And the sins of all who ever would believe are imputed to Jesus. Jesus was personally pure, but officially guilty. Condemned. God substituted the sinless one for the sinful ones. And then God poured out all his judgment, all his wrath, all his punishment against sin on Jesus at the cross. Jesus experienced alienation from the Father. From before time began, Jesus had been with God and was God, and now for the first time ever, the Father turned away. Jesus hung on the cross bearing our sin, alienated from his Father, and feeling the horrible weight of that sin and abandonment, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The substitute was punished for sin that was not his, and he paid the death penalty. That's the substitute. Now we come to the third heading, which is the beneficiary. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We and us. Who are the we and the us? What us does he mean? That's pretty important. You've got to get that down because you can make a mistake. See, some years ago when Amy and I were planning a beach vacation, and I, I mentioned this, by the way, to our youngest daughter who was in college at that time in a state that has a lot of snow. And she enthusiastically said, that sounds great! And that's when I realized I had to explain to her that by we, I did not mean her. That it was just me and Amy was the we. That was the us who were going to the beach. And her enthusiasm waned quickly. So you want to make sure just who is included as the beneficiary in the plan of God and Christ's substitution. Who is us? Who is the we? Well, if you look in the preceding verses, it becomes clear. For example, the very familiar verse 17, which says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So the beneficiaries of the plan of the designer and the substitute are those who are in Christ. Those who have become new creations. It is those of us who are in Christ who stake our lives on him who are the beneficiaries. Now a moment ago I explained how our sin is imputed to Christ. Transferred to Christ, his account. But there's a positive side to imputation as well. Christ's righteousness gets imputed to us. He didn't deserve our sin. We don't deserve his righteousness. But it's transferred to those of us who believe. So I put it in these words, that God puts our sin to Christ's credit and God puts Christ's righteousness to our credit. So in this way, God's justice is satisfied because the penalty is paid, not by me, the sinner, but by Christ. That's the gospel. And I've got a lot of sin in my life. But God looks at me and he does not consider me on the basis of my personal record of righteousness. Because if he did that, I would fail every single time. 
No, God considers me based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Now, even though I lived right near Washington, D.C. and traveled there a fair bit for about eight, nine years, uh, the last time I was actually at the Washington Monument was a long time ago in Stand in the Gap, and some of you were there for that. I was there with a million other men and others, and uh, I, I think that was the time when I think Bill Clinton was president at that point, and as we were standing there around the Washington Monument, uh, Marine One flew over and landed on the south lawn of the White House. Marine One is the helicopter, presidential helicopter. If you were... If you were riding in Marine One, you could land on the south lawn of the White House too. If you're not there and you try to land any other, you're going to get shot down. It's not going to go well. Uh, If you were fortunate enough to be a passenger on Air Force One, you would receive all the protection and the priority and the privilege of the president. As long as you're an invited guest on that plane, all would be well. But the safety and the benefits last only as long as you're inside. It is only in Christ that we become the righteousness of God. Now, once you are in Christ, nothing can change that. Not, no power of hell, no scheme of man can change that. But it's only when you're in Christ that that's true. Not in church, not in a godly family, not under the waters of baptism. In Christ, your faith is in him alone. And when you're in Christ, all your sin, past, present, future is forgiven by god jesus already paid for it jesus took the full fury of judgment now you might wonder well what about the the sins i've committed after becoming a christian christ died for those too because you weren't even born when christ died all of your sin was future when christ died and the bible says that the plan of god was in motion before the world began jesus the substitute was scheduled to die in history for all the sins of all who would ever believe And so if you believe, you have become the righteousness of God. You have been given Jesus' perfect record. God treats you as if you lived the perfect life Jesus lived. And all that benefit comes simply by grace through faith. In faith, you admit that you are desperately sinful, that you are guilty before God, you are in need of reconciliation. Nobody is a believer who has not admitted they need to be saved, that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. When you turn to Jesus, you understand his sin is, your sin is imputed to him and his death paid the, the penalty that you deserve. When Christ died on that cross, the Father knew your sins were there. In addition to that, Christ's righteousness is import, imputed to you. The perfect record of Jesus becomes your record. You receive cleansing you don't deserve. You receive status you don't deserve. So that's theology, that's doctrine. So what's the point? If the perfect record of Jesus becomes yours, what difference should that make in your life? What difference should it make? We lived in Toronto for 10 years. We loved it. Beautiful city. Enjoyed our time there very much. Now, when, when we were there, the, the mayor was a little bit of a kooky guy. He's a furniture salesman, and you know he did kooky things. But after we moved away just a few years, you might remember because it made like international news, they really had a kooky mayor. Mayor Ford was a mess. Uh, He made news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, And one of them was he was caught on video smoking crack with some drug dealers. Probably not a video you show to try and get reelected. But they had it. So imagine if Mayor Ford defended his actions this way. I could smoke crack if I want. I'm the mayor. Right? Right? Well, this position is not an excuse to commit crimes, is it? If anything, he should be held to a higher standard because he's mayor. I give that example because far too many of us who claim to be Christians are living like hell. And you live like hell when you sin without regret, concern, repentance. So, So when you're critical, when you're a critical person of others, when you are constantly complaining, When you're dishonest in business, or you cheat in school, or you lie to get out of trouble, when you're stingy with your resources, or when you spend money you don't have, or when you engage in gossip, when you hold grudges, when you get drunk, when you're not faithful, when you refuse to love certain kinds of people, or you won't forgive those who wronged you, when you're lazy, or when you're a workaholic, or when you manipulate or use people to get what you want, when you're volatile, and on and on I could go with all these things, And then you excuse your sin because you're a Christian. 
and you think or say, I'm free in Christ, don't judge me. I, I would say basically anytime that sentence is in your mind, you're wrong. Because you're taking the wrong approach. If you live that way, things will not go well for you. If you live in unrepentant sin, uh, not, not, without a care, without turning from that, without being convicted and turning to God and asking for forgiveness, then one thing you won't have is the assurance that you actually belong to Jesus. Because God does not give us righteousness as an excuse to sin. Do we sin? Yes, I sin. All that, but God didn't give me his righteousness in Christ as an excuse for me to sin. So those who are in Christ want to live up to their position. And when they fail and fall, they run to God for cleansing. If not immediately, then eventually. They're eager to repent. They're desperately dependent on the Lord. And every day they give thanks because through Christ's work on the cross, they have become the righteousness of God. And so if you commit the same sin over and over and over without any sense of guilt, without any sense of, of repentance, the solution is not religion. The solution is not self-esteem. You need the cross. If you have no confidence or assurance that, that God has accepted you, come to the cross. If there's personal For any personal conflict in your life right now, whatever it is, the answer is the cross. In Christ, you become the righteousness of God. I want to put all this down in front of you to say that when you understand God designed Christ to be your substitute so that you could become righteous, then you're intensely humbled because you know you didn't deserve it. And you're deeply motivated to live up to who God declared you to be, a saint, a child of God. And you're eternally encouraged. Why? Because in Christ you have become righteous. Those are beautiful things that are true because of this doctrine. And that's the type of Christian this world needs to see. And I am so heartbroken over the fact that that is not the type of Christian that the world is seeing now. They need to see Christians who are so humbled because they know they don't deserve the grace of God instead of those who are pointing at everyone else to see how far short they fall. And you see Christians who are deeply motivated to be holy because of who they are in Christ. And so encouraged, no matter what happens in this world, politically, economically, whatever happens, they're so encouraged because we know who we are in Christ. And he's got it all in control. We know how the story turns out. Humble holy, grateful. That's what this doctrine should do to your life and to mine. Sunha Kathir Mashur was having coffee with friends at the Westgate Mall when she heard gunfire. She dropped to the floor as armed terrorists invaded this upscale mall in Nairobi. And gunfire is going on, and everyone is terrified. And, and she looks beside her, and there's a young man on the floor whose cell phone began to ring, and he did not move to turn it off. And she was terrified that the, the terrorists would come, draw, have their attention drawn to them, and, and kill them as they were killing others. And so she, she reached under his body, got the phone, and turned it off. And she said, when I put my hand under him, I realized that this guy had been shot. There was a lot of blood. And what Sneha did next kept her from being one of the 72 people murdered that day in the Westgate Mall. She covered herself with the young man's blood and lay motionless until help arrived. And once safe at home with her husband and son, she told reporters this, I'd love to know who that man was because his blood saved my life. Today, I present to you the one who saves with his blood. His name is Jesus. In Christ, you become the righteousness of God. Jesus is your only hope, your only salvation, your only substitute, your only source of life, your only way to the Father, the only one worthy of your trust, the only one who will not fail. In him, you become the righteousness of God, and there is no greater truth than that. 
And we have the privilege this morning of being reminded of that and celebrating that in a very tactile way with the bread and the cup. If you are in Christ this morning, I urge you to, along with me, take this time to prepare yourself for just a few moments that we will eat and drink together. But you prepare yourself how? By living out that doctrine which is declared. But by humbling yourself before the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal in your life the things where you are falling short, where you have sinned, where you have fallen short of the glory of God, and confessing them and turning to the only solution that is Jesus Christ the Lord. And so in these next few moments, would you take this time to prepare, and then we will eat and drink together. Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, Name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for sinners slain. Thank you, oh, my Father. For giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Sing that with us. Thank you, oh my Father. For giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. God, our Father, we thank you that you have designed from eternity past the way to have fellowship with you. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence with us now, assuring us, guaranteeing us that we belong to God through the substitute sacrifice of his Son. Be honored now as we give you thanks in the way that you have prescribed. Receive glory. The New Testament describes how on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And what he said to them that night, he says to each of his followers, you and me, if you're in Christ today, we remember him he said take and eat this is my body let us eat and then he took the cup 
and let's noisily open these cups together. Because in that way, it reminds us that this was not some clean, bloodless, quiet sacrifice. The guiltless, sinless Son of God was brutally tortured and executed that we might have life. And on that night, knowing it would all happen. (laughs) Trying to explain it to his disciples so many times and they still didn't get it. But he said, this is my blood. It's the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that brings us to a place of great gratitude and expectation as we give thanks to God and look toward that day. And we want to remember that sacrifice and respond to that now in singing our praise. We're actually going to sing a portion of the scripture that Pastor John preached about today. Let me invite you to stand together with us and let's worship and lift our voice to Jesus, the Messiah. Sing this out together. He became sin who knew no sin. Might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah.
our Redeemer. How great is that? How great is that to be able to sing and celebrate what God has done together? Well, I invite you, if uh, you would like ministry, a couple of elders will be here to the side to pray with you, for you, as we bring this service to a close. And I, right now, just invite you to receive this benediction from the, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, that speaks of some of this truth that we've been declaring this morning. So I want you to go now in the name of the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to serve his God and our Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.